Thank you. Uh, the only problem I see is that, I mean, those people out there, I don't know why, probably I know regulations, but you know, this is not a disco where people get burned, no. Not yet, so they could have, okay, whatever. Uh, so, I have many things to say, let me begin. Now, I was supposed to do something which is somehow linked with art. I know practically nothing about art, so I took the safest road, which is Alfred Hitchcock. I will not read from the old book, I will take a big risk. I will choose probably some of the best known scenes from Vertigo and I will try to demonstrate to you that some strange aspects which till now were not properly noted can still be analyzed there. Okay, so my starting point is a very naive psychoanalytic one. Reading practically all, or at least majority, books on Hitchcock, I couldn't help noticing how uh, in almost all of them you find factual mistakes. Scenes are simply, if you compare them, compare the description in the book with what you see in a movie theater on DVD, you simply see that there are mistakes. And these mistakes are sometimes absolutely extraordinary, like in one of the good books on Hitchcock, Raymond Durgnat's uh, the Strange Case of Alfred Hitchcock. You have a 40 pages detailed analysis of vertigo and again and again stating how the film takes place in Los Angeles. Not in, I mean, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, and again, it's systematic with Hitchcock much more than with other authors. But what I claim is that the, the very excess of these mistakes is in a way symptomatic. They don't simply devalue the analysis. They rather bear witness to some excessive subjective engagement with Hitchcock's films. So let me begin with one short scene. Just before you start, I will try just to make it clear to describe it. It's five minutes into the film, the well-known scene when in earnest, upper class now closed down, I tried to enter weeks ago, restaurant in San Francisco uh, where uh, Scotty, James Stewart meets, for the first time, Madeleine. The, uh, okay, let's see this short scene. I must only apologize, sometimes in a panic I had to get these clips together. You will see as a free bonus obscenity Slovene subtitles. What can I do? Okay. No, sorry, stop. Please, you didn't do what I told you. Rewind it. Ah, oh, yeah, you did it. Okay, sorry, sorry. It shouldn't happen to me. Uh, what to be, okay. Uh, I will start with another, so that I will do it properly, with another detail about Hitchcock, where we will see an ordinary scene. This will be the one which we started, which I started showing you, a scene from Shadow of a Doubt, where, as you will see, where it's just an ordinary scene, two-thirds into the film. Don't yet start, please. Where, uh, uh, the un Uncle Char no, sorry, the detective who suspects that Uncle Charlie is the murderer takes Denise Charlie on a walk and after some short time she suspects that he is really a policeman, not interested sexually, uh, uh, emotionally in her, but just wants to exploit her to learn about her uncle. Please, just this, now you can read. You're a detective. There's something the matter and you're a detective. 
Charlie, listen. I don't want to listen. Stop. Okay. Very short shot. Uh, you know what happens here? It, it may appear a totally innocent, ordinary scene, but there is a wonderful detail, which is that secretly, if you noticed it, the order of causality is inverted. The standard way would have been for the uncle to do, sorry, for the detective to do something suspicious and then shot on, on her, my God, you are a policeman. Here we have an innocent conversation laughing and so on, and then you get a brutal, direct cut to this perplexed gaze. And from this, the perplexed gaze, which should be the effect, gradually the causes are explained. You get a cut into the gaze, and so that what you see afterwards is ambiguous. Ambiguous in the sense that uh, it is true, but as it were, not quite true. It's never clear is what we see afterwards, what accounts for the shocked gaze. Is it simply the true cause, or is it that it's simply a hallucinatory, hallucinatory projection? So that you will see how deep in Hitchcock this structure is. Let me show you now, and I will say now, uh, not yet, three further clips which think are Hitchcock at its best. You will see how in totally different uh, narrative context you find the same formal structure, which is uh, the structure, which is that of, an, uh, of a couple arguing on a small hill, half barren, usually with a couple of trees, bushes, windy, just outside the scope of a public place where a group of ignorant observers look the couple. And uh, the three scenes, there are more, but these are three clearest scenes, are from... Uh, Suspicion, birds, and torn curtain. In suspicion, of course, is the brief, famous shot of Cary Grant and John Fontaine struggling on a windy hill near the church, observed by Fontaine's friends from the entrance. In the birds, it is the scene just prior to the first bird attack on a group of children in which Mitch and Melanie withdraw again to a small hill above the picnic place. Finally, the most interesting one, the torn curtain, it is the scene in which Paul Newman and Julie Andrews again withdraw to a small hill, which totally crazy geography is. The scene is supposed to take place in the headquarters of East German secret police. But when Hitchcock needs it in the center of East Berlin, even there, there is, you will see the same small hill. And the same scene, the couple arguing up there, it's not clear what goes on. I mean, and the perplexed observers down. Please, start again. So that's suspicion. The scene was analyzed in detail 30 years ago by Stephen King. You, you saw for a brief minute the perplexed place. Now, and what did you think I was trying to do? Kill you? Nothing less than murder can justify such violent self-defense. Look at you. Let me go. Oh, I'm just beginning to understand. You thought of someone tell Madame Yes, I do. You mean it's better to be ditched? No, I think it's better to be loved. Don't you ever see it? Well, I don't know where she is. You see, now, now, soon you will see how again they stand on a hill and the perplexed girl in this case are not are not friends, but of course, mother and ex-mistress. And of course, it's 
clear, even in a too transparent way, how the birds which will attack in a second are kind of materialization of the maternal fury and the... Okay, it's transparent today, but my point here is that how uh, the subjectivity of the games is, is it five minutes with is, after all, she yeah, is my girl. That was that's now this is again you see the irony, the same here you find it mysteriously in the center of East Berlin. The scene from Torn Curtain where uh, Paul Newman has to tell the truth that he is really a good guy, not a traitor to Julie Andrews. He takes her on, on a hill. You see, it's practically Cary Grant and John Fontaine. And again, the perplexed is German policeman not knowing what goes on. Okay, let us simply stop here, put on the light, and then since... I just confused some parts. You know what I propose to you to solve this stupid problem for which I'm responsible? Go around, around five minutes forward, just without voice, and uh, you will find a, a scene from Vertigo which I described. After a scene from Fight Club which we will not see, and, and a scene with Jim Carrey which we will not see. Just play with this behind me and five minutes forward till you get that scene in the Ernest restaurant. Okay, let me go on here. So, the key feature in all these three cases is that the couple on the hill is observed by an innocent, threatening, ignorant observer below the hill. And the traumatic character of this scene, the excess that pertains to it, hinges on this gaze. It is only from the standpoint of this gaze that the scene is traumatic. When later, or earlier, the camera jumps closer to the couple, the situation is normalized. So again, the fundamental procedure here is that there is more truth in this misperception by the ignorant observing gaze than in the objective true state of things. You got the point. The point is that if we were to be shown, we are even not aware how much our perception of the scene depends on the fact that previously we see that perplexed gaze. It is as it were the gaze is inscribed into the scene itself. For example, you noticed in the, in the first of these three shots from suspicion how even the weather changes in a totally non-realistic way. Down there at the church it's terribly calm. All of a sudden up it's windy. So it's this ambiguity you don't know is this really going on or is it the dirty fantasy of the girl who is observing them down there. Of course the Lacanian point is that it is really going on, but at a phantasmatic level in the imagination of the couple, there must be an innocent gaze to be shocked, observing them from down. So again, the point here is not a simple opposition between reality and subjective gaze, but it is that when uh, how to put it, uh, we, we penetrate the depth beneath the elusive surface precisely through this subjective excess of illusion. If we take away the partial gaze which doesn't understand the situation, we, uh, we miss precisely what is really going on. In other words, the idea is that the first traumatized gaze contains more truth than the later explanation. It's not, you know, take a second look and you will understand it. It's the first perplexed gaze in a way understand this. Take a second look and 
you will miss the point. Where are we now there, please? Because I would really like to see, I'm sorry for this confusion. Okay, it will be over in a couple of seconds. Perfect. I did it. Are you okay? What happened? Okay. This was... Okay. Leave it. So, this is from another line of argumentation, Jim Carrey, me, myself, and Irene. My point is that in the same way as in the Fight Club, the fish, which, is, which becomes what in the Nesian terms I call an, not a an body without organs, but organ without body. Finally, sorry for the mess, here we are. Remember that Scotty is there, on the side. And now, of course, the stain, the back, the conté of Kinova camera approaching. Okay, so that we don't lose too much time. It is clear that this shot is not a point-of-view shot. Because Scotty is there, on the side. Now, if you don't believe me, check it up. I did it. Practically all books on Hitchcock. Ah, that's interesting. Now you see, now there is a jump to the exchange of subjective and objective thought. Now be even, look even more carefully. She approaches, it's not a subjective shot. Because you will see now soon Scotty, how precisely he is not looking at her. You see? He's not looking at her. It's only now that we get the standard exchange of subjective and objective shock. Stop. Okay. Uh, so again, the mystery is an elementary one. I, I couldn't believe it. I checked it up. Practically all, for example, Robin Wood in the first version of his Hitchcock's films, only in the second version he corrects it, and practically all big names, Laura Malvi and so on, describe the two shots, the two most libidinally charged shots. First one, the camera through the large restaurant uh, room uh, approaching Kim Novak, and the second one, this fascinating profile, they describe it as a point of view shot of Scotty, which is not true. Why? What, what do we get here? Here again, the ambiguity of subjective and objective is crucial. Precisely insofar as Madeleine's profile is not Scotty's point of view. The shot of her profile is nonetheless totally subjectivized. In a way, depicting not what Scotty effectively sees, but what he imagines. His hallucinatory inner vision. Recall how when we seen Madeleine's profile, the red background of the restaurant wall seemed to get even more intense, almost threatening to explode in red, red heat turning into yellow blaze, as if the passion of Scottish grace was directly inscribed into the background. Uh, so, you know, that's what I want to draw your attention to. How, for example, the second shot, the profile, it was intensely subjectivized, but it was not his point of view shot, and you, you notice how he precisely was afraid to take a look directly at her. So it is as if 
This shot was libidinally too intense. He didn't dare to take a look at it directly. It is only when he gained a minimum of safe distance after uh, Madeleine withdrew towards the entrance, towards the door, that he dared Scotty to look at her and you get the standard shooter procedure, exchange of subjective-objective shot. So this is, in a way, the Hitchcockian excess. Uh, subjective shot, but which nonetheless cannot be attributed to any subject. It, it is a kind of a subjectivization without subject. The eye, or the gaze rather, functions here, to put it in Deleuzean terms, as an organ without body, directly registering the passion in an intensity which cannot be assumed by the subject. So again, what we get in these two shots, which are subjectivized without being attributed to a subject, is precisely a pure pre-subjective phenomenon. The profile of Madeleine is such a pure appearance, extremely libidinally invested, but precisely in a way too subjective to be assumed or attributed to a subject. And again, I read then the structure procedure, that is to say, later, the camera involves in a, the standard exchange of uh, point of view shot, objective shot, that is, we see Scotty, we see what he sees, precisely as a kind of uh, gentrification, domestication, taming of this subjective excess. You know, it's as if he didn't dare to look at it, it was too much, when he gained distance, it was able to get this exchange. And it is precisely, in a way, this excess, interestingly enough, which had to be censored. Now, I, I speak on, on, almost as a good Deleuzean. This point of subjectivization without subject had to be censored, had to be, in most of readings, uh, reinterpreted as if we are dealing with a point of view shot. Here we encounter what Lacan calls gaze as object. Precisely because, again, we get the gaze which cannot be attributed to the subject. We all know, to give you another example of it, these uncanny moments in our daily lives when we sight of our own image, for example, if you are in a bathroom with two mirrors which are not coordinated, you know this strange phenomenon where through this double mirroring you can get a view of yourself but not face to face. You can see in the double mirror yourself from a side perspective. And at least, okay, maybe I'm the idiot here, but at least for me, uh, the effect is always minimally terrifying. In the sense that you are, as it were, deprived of your eye, literally. Your eye is watching you from, 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 uh, from the outside. And uh, something like this, I claim, takes place in that shot. Ah, now let's go further. Uh, how this eye is objectivized in Hitchcock's Vertigo. First, it's incredible to see at what level Hitchcock manipulates censorship. Because now you will see a scene which is well known to you and there is a detail in the scene which is totally, usually overlooked, but I think it's crucial. You remember, I hope everybody knows the movie, after Scotty saves Madeleine from water from the sea under Golden Gate, Golden Gate Bridge, he brings her to, her to his apartment, and you remember then the scene, no? how in his apartment, before entering the bedroom with uh, Madeleine, the camera moves across the room, and you see above a kind of a kitchen sink, her underwear uh, there uh, dry. 
being uh, there, uh, to, to be dried hanging on a rope, the idea being, of course, that he undressed her, that is to say, that he must have seen her naked. Interestingly enough, do you know that this was the scene where Hitchcock had to fight terribly with censorship? And the censorship won, but nobody notices it. And that's the mystery of censorship here. Because we automatically assume that that's underwear. But let's see, it's not. But nobody notices it. So again, you got the point of my question. For whom is this stage? Just look carefully. Are we already too late? No. Look at it. Look, look, look in detail. It's not, it's not underwear. But I asked all of my friends and everyone thinks it's underwear. Because we expect it. It's logical to be. So I asked you an elementary question. Stop. For, for, for which gaze did, on what, I mean, what was the censorship afraid of? Not for viewers' morality. All viewers automatically assume this is, that, that this is uh, uh, Madeleine's underwear. But what were they afraid of? They said just it shouldn't really be underwear. But for whom? No viewer. No viewer notices it. So you see how effectively how ideology functions. Even this most naive vulgar Hollywood censor has to refer to a kind of naive objectified view which has to be, whose innocence has to be respected even if it is noticed by no one. You know, it's not that the censorship prevented anyone from us, I don't know, imagining uh, nastiness or whatever. No, it's purely the case of the other. And this brings us to the point of how more com much more complex than we think, I claim today, the notion of belief is. Because, again, everyone believes he sees it. Who must be? Whose innocence? Who, who is the one whose innocent belief has to be maintained here? It's the function of what Lacan calls the big other at its purest. And this brings us again to the problematic of belief, very fashionable today, you know, terrorists, fundamentalists, do they really believe, and so on and so on. Here I follow my good friend, Austrian philosopher Robert Faller, who recently uh, developed, in an extremely precise, convincing way, the idea that, quite on the contrary, it's not that we today don't believe we are cynical, always a distance, and that in some good old times they really believed. If anything, it's the exact opposite. His idea is that it is only with early modernity, Protestantism and so on, that the idea of this first-person belief, I really believe it, I stand behind it, emerged. His idea is that even in medieval times, like, you know, Beliefs functioned more as, how should I call them, uh, more like some kind of uh, matter of politeness, social play. It doesn't mean that you personally really believed in it. And Robert Fowler demonstrates in a way... We, 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 okay, to give you first another example of this ambiguity. We all know Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence. But who is innocent there? Okay, to, talk in, to speak in the movie terms, Winona Ryder, the young wife. But as we learn at the end, she knew it all the time. So it's not that, in, in so far as she stands for the previous more naive society, it's not that before they, they believed. They, before, on the contrary, before they were less naive. Before, prior to this break of modernity, they were able to combine, uh, to combine sincere belief paradoxically with pure knowledge of, with real radical knowledge of how things really stand. And Robert Fowler's thesis is that, on the contrary, if anything,
painting, it's so-called postmodern deconstruction, which is totally the attitude of radical belief, most naive belief. Far from being skeptical. Why? Let's just look at it at, at a stylistic level. My good friend Judith Butler, my not so good friend Jacques Derrida or whoever. How can you directly identify them? They are afraid to say, this is it. Like, they will not say, this is a glass. They will say, might we not, under certain circumstances, reach the hypothesis that within our language game, maybe this, we can consider this a glass. But you know what's the tragedy? The tragedy is that they are afraid that if they were to say, this is the glass, that they would really say, they still believe in it. Before, they knew it that you can say, this is a glass, and all these distanciations were included. So before they were less naive. It's precisely this fear of that you would commit, or like love would be another example. Today nobody says, I love you. At most you say, as the poets would say, I love you, or oh, maybe I love you, and so on. But the problem is that, as if it mattered, you can say, I love you, and of course you don't mean it, or whatever. I mean, it's always included, no, I mean, the distance, and so on. Which is why I claim, I, I tell, this is what I find suspicious in so-called uh, cultural studies. I think that the best definition of why is this term culture so popular today? I think it stands precisely for this fear of assuming beliefs, for distance towards belief. Because I think if it means anything today, culture, in this all-pervasive sense of cultural studies and so on, culture, I think, are social phenomena towards which precisely we maintain this minimum, the minimal distance. Like religion is religion if you are supposed to believe in it. If not, it turns into a cultural phenomenon. And I think this was, for example, our hypocrisy, you know, remember two years ago when the Taliban bombarded the Bamiyan uh, Buddha statues. We were so enraged, but what was the problem? The problem was culture. Nobody said, oh my God, we believe in it. If anything, they were closer to belief, the Taliban. We just, we, we respect it. And the, the ultimate paradox for me is that, how are those who take seriously their culture called, where they are called fundamentalist barbarians. I mean, that again, so precisely, the term culture means we want to have our, we want to have our distance. Okay, so much about belief. Now, let's go on with Vertigo a little bit. I think if there ever was an anti-Platonic film, it's Vertigo. Why? The murderous fury which seizes Scotty when, at the end, he finally discovers that Judy, whom he tried to make into Madeleine, is Madeleine. This is precisely the fury of a deceived Platonist when he perceives that the original he wanted to remake into a perfect copy is already itself a copy. The shock here, and this is around the shock around which Vertigo turns, is not that the original turns out to be a mere copy. This is a standard deception against which Platonism warns us all the time. It is that what we mistook for the copy turns out to be, uh, turns out to be original. Please go on now. Prior to this final reversal, we have a nice anti-Platonic subversion in Vertigo. You remember in this scene when uh, Scotty, in the middle already of his affair, still pursuing Madeleine, comes to his prior, prior girlfriend, Mitch, who then, you know the scene, this shocking, tasteless, it appears tasteless. I didn't want to see. 
portrait of Carlotta, again, the trauma of this is not that she imitates the model, it's that she, as it were, undermines the original, this is the key scene. And here I think you can see the distance of Hitchcock from the standard Hollywood image, for example, from a movie like Laura, where you have almost the same scene, the original and the copy. There in Laura it just confirms stop, it just confirms the fascination of the hero. Here it undermines it radically. So, in the, in, then, in this, that time in Vertigo, ten minutes after Sco Scotty met Judy, who turns out to be the true Madeleine at the end, and before Judy's final transformation into Madeleine, there are three wonderful scenes which, uh, which uh, depict this, the horror of this, let's call it, patriarchal imposition. Please go on again. And this will be the last three shots there. Only me and so on. Yeah. Okay. First, this is. First, you will see the scene in Ernest again. Scotty with so-called vulgar girl Madeleine. For a brief moment, he will see a woman reminding him of Madeleine in grey dress. Of course, you can. Did you notice the structural similarity between this one and the previous shot? You have again the, as it were, the appearance of the original and the copy. What is so wonderful? about this is that you can see how this platonic suprasensible dimension is closer to appearance. It's the appearance within the appearance. She is the real one, but the platonic idea, as it were, was there in that brief appearance. Now, the second short scene is after this dinner when the two of them return to the house. Here you see literally the other side, the dark side, as it were, of the profile we saw from the beginning, at the beginning of the movie, fascinating but late. Here you will see on the contrary, Judy, literally you will see it's just a dark profile. It is as if she is here just to lend the dark stuff, the platonic horror, so that the profile can be projected onto her. And then you will get a truly tragic shot of her face being literally torn, split into two. You see only one half, as if ontologically not constituted, the other half darkness. And I think that that's the moment of subjectivization. There you see her as literally split subject. No, Judy, you don't understand. Well, I understand, all right. I've been understanding since I was 17. And the next step is... And what? We could just see a lot of each other. Why? You see, that's what she sees. Just the profile. The parallel structure between this shot and again. The shot from the beginning. Not she is literally reduced to dark matter. And nothing else? No. Now we will see her gradual subjectivization. I just want to be with you as much as I can, Judy. You see, that's she. I think there is more, if you want, feminist criticism in this simple shot than in most official feminist stuff. Oh, okay, let's stop simply. Okay, here it's a short scene of dancing, which is interesting only because you can literally see how disgusted Scotty is at her. Stop. How literally she is for him just... She wants her just as the dark screen, dark silhouette.
to be to, to, as a projection screen, as it were, so that this profile which we saw at the beginning would fit into it. Okay, after all this dialectic of grace and so on, I now change the topic and ask a simple question. So uh, we have this idea of a gaze which, as it were, introduces two levels into reality. We see an excess there. We see more, as the fascinating is from the three shots, uh, suspicion, and so on. So what do we see there? Ah, now I make a jump and things will get a little bit more dynamic. Uh, you know, do you know what are the so-called kinder surprise eggs? You know, the eggs where if you break the surface, in the middle there is a plastic toy. Okay, this will be my central metaphor. Why? Because you know what usually happens. A child buys the egg, unwraps it, breaks the chocolate shell, and goes directly at the plastic toy. If you don't understand Lacan, this is, I think, the perfect case of Lacan's motto, I love you, but inexplicably. I love something in you more than yourself, and therefore I destroy you. You literally have the object, and within it, the object cause of desire. Officially, you eat chocolate, but you want something in chocolate more than chocolate, the plastic toy. Why is this so interesting? I think it's very interesting marketing strategy here. No wonder, two weeks ago, that these chocolate eggs are prohibited in California. So now you can smuggle them there and sell them for triple price, because, as we already know from Marx, commodity is a mysterious entity full of theological caprice. A particular object satisfying a particular need, but at the same time the promise of something more, of an unfathomable enjoyment whose true location is fantasy. This is how publicity addresses us. No, if you drink eggs, you will not just be drinking eggs, but also there is always some mystical more. And what I like in this strategy of kinder egg is that they don't just promise you this more in a kind of a vulgar way, they, they give it to you, you know. It's not just this, it's more. Yes, you can see it there. It's the, it's the, it's the plastic toy. So it is as if, again, this strategy of uh, publicity, which is buy a DVD player and get five DVDs for free, or buy this toothpaste and get one more free, and so on and so on. This more, this excess, which of course stands for the lack, because the trick of commodity is that it promises you, it gives you a spectral promise, it never delivers. But the trick of Kinder X is that it is as if their message is, we know that commodities as such cheat. We recognize this lack, but we give, it, we give you what is missing. You get the full commodity. You get commodity as such, and you get the surplus materialized in there. Now things get really interesting. Looking into it closely, and especially focusing on the fact how the chocolate egg, Kinder Surprise egg, has the form of an of a empty ball, void in the middle, it's just encircling a void, and then the plastic toy is here to fill in the void. I read a little bit, I went a little bit into history and discovered a strange thing. How? You know that in the Elizabethan England, the primary meaning of the term void was not void as a metaphysical void, like uh, nothingness, mystical experience. Void meant two things. First, the room where you withdraw after the main meal. The idea was the following one. First you have in the great banquet hall the meal, official meal with toast, blah, blah, blah. Then after you eat there the substantial food, meat and so on, you withdraw to a smaller room 
at the site, and th this room was referred to as void. The idea is you are there while the big table is voided. And then in this room, small cakes, patisserie was served, which itself was structured as a void. It was usually an imitation of the real thing, but as kind of a empty stuff, almost as coffee without caffeine, without substance. For example, there you, in the big banquet hall, you got real pheasant, here or pork, here you got just a out of thin layer of sugar model of pork with void in, in the middle. Uh, what was also interesting was how this, this, this space of void was referred to as the space of subjectivity. The idea is that in the big banquet hall, it was official toast, you had to play your public role. The moment you withdrew into the void, you, you were there you, you entered into this relaxed exchange of rumors, impressions, confessions, opinions, the entire scope from the trivial to the most intimate. So we have here the first opposition between substance, the substantial real meal, and the void of appearance of subjectivity. You know Hegel's motto, according to which we should conceive the absolute not only as substance, but also as subject. I'm tempted to say originally this meant not only meat and bread, but also good cakes and so on, like space of sub subjectivity. Now, uh, even more than I went a step further, but isn't it that the most famous Heideggerian example also involves the void, the Greek vase in Das Ding, the vase as primordial thing, which is, again, just an encircled void where you put things which you then give as a sacrificial gift to God and so on. My idea was that we should do here something along the lines of what Adorno and Horkheimer do in their dialectic of enlightenment, you know, where they like to condense in one wild metaphor the entire development of the West, like from the primordial magic manipulation of primitive tribes to our technological manipulation. I think the best metaphor would be for us, like something like the Greeks, this vase, and then out you get the plastic toy or something like this. Like my point is that the old Greek vase was there kinder surprise. That is to say that with all the, I'm well aware of the big shift from original authentic religious object to the triviality of kinder surprise act, <clears throat> but let's not forget that the structure is that of the void throughout. Even a step further we should make here. Uh, this tension inscribed into the notion of commodity, between what the commodity gives and the more that it is supposed to give. Today especially, I claim, that this, uh, this tension has more and more the tension between pleasure and health, in the sense that what you get at the surface is the pleasure, you can enjoy fat and so on and so on, what you get then in the middle is the real thing is this three points, but it's really healthy. For example, one can even imagine this kinder surprise egg as that instead of a plastic toy, it should be just a large pill, you know, like first enjoyment, then pill. Isn't there a well-known contemporary novel, I forgot its title, where I think the hero drinks champagne, that this is his diet, champagne and Xanax. And sometimes he even, I think, dissolves Xanax, so that, you know, you get at the same time pleasure and the countermeasure, as it were, to pleasure. And while in California, I'm not ashamed to admit I had an almost metaphysical experience of this paradoxical dimension of commodity, 
I had to buy a laxative, and they had one in the form, believe it or not, we are of chocolate. So, no, you got them, got them this paradoxical injunction. You are still constipated, eat more chocolate, more of this chocolate. I think this is the tension in it, in the commodity. And I think that this tension is arguably uh, Christian in its structure. In what sense? Again, my reference, I cannot do without it, to Gilbert Keith Chesterton, who emphasized how the opposition between paganism and Christianity is not as simple as it may appear. It's not that in paganism you are allowed to joyfully assert life, to enjoy it, while Christianity imposes a somber order of guilt and renunciation. It's on the contrary, the pagan stance, which is deeply melancholic. Even if it preaches a pleasurable life, it is always in the mode of enjoy it while it lasts, because in the end there is always death and decay. But according to Chesterton, the message of Christianity is the opposite one. There is infinite joy beneath the deceptive surface of guilt and renunciation. A very nice quote from Chesterton's orthodoxy. The outer ring of Christianity is a rigid guard of ethical abnegations and professional priests. But inside that inhuman guard, you will find the old human life, dancing like children, drinking wine like men. For, a nice quote, for Christianity is the only frame for pagan freedom.